You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak today. I'd really like to thank the organizers for including me in the program. And I am the director, I was the director of the Contact Dermatitis Clinic at the Baylor College of Medicine for over 17 years. And now I have a private practice patch testing clinic. Um, I'm still very active with teaching medical students and residents. And um, I would also like to thank Dr. Ted Rosen. He has spoken to me, yeah. He was my chief at the VA for 17 years and um, what a, privilege to have, they're called Rosen Rounds. So on Tuesdays at the VA, you would bring challenging cases to Dr. Rosen. So can you imagine having that like right next door? Um, and he told me what a wonderful conference that this is and it's been so wonderful so far. And I hope to be able to add to the education that um, you've received today. I am very interested in this topic of what to do and what to recommend for patients with suspected allergic contact dermatitis. And part of that is because I have a lot of friends who are in this area and they have patients with contact dermatitis and we can't necessarily patch test everybody and we can't patch test everybody next week. And so I really started thinking about what can I recommend to patients before they get patch testing done? What can they avoid? What can they use? And so that really informs the framework of what I'm going to speak about today. And in terms of disclosures, I'm on the advisory board for Vichy Laboratories, and I'm an author of a book for the general public on diet and dermatology, but neither one of those will be discussed in this talk. And when I see a patient like this, you know, you get to the point where you have enough pattern recognition that, you know, I, I see this patient and she's got dermatitis on the forehead close to the hairline. And the first thing I'm going to think about is what hair serum are you using? See a lot of hair serum causing issues these days. And for this patient, I might say, you know, I want you to stop that EOS flavored lip balm. I think that might be the trigger for your chelitis. And for this patient, something I'm seeing so much I'm going to say stop your hair dye. You know, those are the first things that come to mind. But in general, the format I'm going to use is stop that, use this. So to give you an example, if I see a patient with eyelid dermatitis, you know, when I think about rashes on the eyelids, I'm going to think about what are they using on the eyelids? What are they using near the eyelids? What might be transferred to the eyelids? And then what might be an airborne exposure that might affect the eyelids? So when you're talking about things that are used on the eyelids, when I take a patient history, even before I do any patch testing, obviously, you know, we make a very thorough patient history. What skincare products are you using? Eye drops, I've seen a number of cases due to glaucoma eye drops recently, so that's on my, it's on my radar right now. Eye ointments are a big one that we'll talk about. And then used nearby, that's things like hair care. And when you talk about transferred from elsewhere, that might be nail polish or nail products or nickel, you know, things that you're touching and transferring. And then airborne, a big one right now, or essential oil, air diffusers, um, and even pollens, even though they don't trigger allergic contact dermatitis, might play a role in the eyelids. So for a patient with eyelid dermatitis, I might just say, stop your current skincare, your makeup, 
any makeup remover wipes, maybe your hair care. That's kind of the thought process that's going through my mind. I'll probably have them stop any unnecessary eye drops or eye ointments, and I'm gonna change the soap that they're using. So we're gonna kind of start over. And I'm also going to be really careful about what might be transferred. And nail polish is one that was kind of on our radar before, but right now I'm seeing so many shellac nails or gel nails. That's a big one, but those use acrylate chemicals. Those are the same chemicals used in acrylic nails. And so I'm gonna talk about stopping that as well. Might think about hair dye, might think about the metallic eyeglass frames. And so, you can't just stop things, you have to recommend avoidance. And one of my, or you have to recommend alternatives, excuse me. One of my areas of focus in the field of allergic contact dermatitis is recommending solutions for patients. So it's not just enough to tell your patients, I want you to stop this, 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 and this. I'm very specific with what products I recommend. And in the early days, I wasn't quite as specific. And then I realized that patients go to Target and they try to pick a sunscreen and they are faced with a wall of over 100 options. And you know, it's the same thing when you come to moisturizers. Even soaps nowadays, it's amazing how many facial cleansers and body cleansers and bar soaps there are. So I'm extremely specific with the products that I recommend. And so for eyelid dermatitis, I might have them use a very old-fashioned product called Albuline. So I have a few of these sort of in, the, in my pocket where um, that patients can, that I can recommend to patients that they can easily find that have very few allergens that I can feel comfortable recommending along a broad range of patients. Albuline is one that women used to use in the olden days to remove makeup. It's kind of like a cold cream and it liquefies on contact and it removes makeup, leaves a lot of grease behind. And that might be a good thing for somebody with really dry eyelids that are inflamed. So that's an example. And then I'm going to recommend less allergenic cleansers, moisturizers, and hair care products. And we're gonna talk a little bit about my methodology for determining less allergenic products. But I'm also going to have them use medications to treat the inflammation. And I might be careful about the metal eyeglass frames. I might have them switch to plastic because I see so many allergic reactions to nickel. In terms of medicated ointments, this is one that I recommend a lot. And I'm sure like a lot of you, uh, I end up practicing cell phone dermatology because my friends will text me a picture or you know, somebody that I, a family member might text me a picture and say, what can I use for this? And if it's a contact dermatitis that I'm suspecting, one of the products that I like that's over the counter is cortisone 10, 1% hydrocortisone ointment. That's brand name only, ointment only. And for eyelids, you can use it twice a day. I tell everybody no more than seven days max on the eyelids. If it was somebody using it on the face, I might say up to four weeks on the cheeks or up to four weeks on the lips. But eyelids, I always write down seven days max. Um, another option for eyelid dermatitis, I do like protopic or tacrolimus. Um, that's another option for eyelids. And I sometimes will have them overlap it for three days if I'm worried about irritant dermatitis. In terms of ophthalmic medications for the eyelid dermatitis, be really careful with Tobradex. I think a lot of the ophthalmologists really like Tobradex because it combines an antibiotic with a dexamethasone steroid, but remember that tobramycin can cross-react with neomycin. And if you look at the top 10 allergens in the United States, neomycin and bacitracin are both in the top 10. And so tobramycin 
could cross-react with neomycin. But that's also the reason I'm going to be very careful about any ophthalmic meds that they have, because of that neomycin and bacitracin could be found in different ophthalmic ointments. And then, of course, eye drops and their preservatives can be an issue. And it's interesting, um, I didn't realize this quite as often when I was early in my practice, but people who have type 1 allergy to dogs or cats or dust mites and pollens, that's not supposed to cause problems on the skin because those are big proteins. The thing is, though, if you have atopic dermatitis and if you have an impairment of your skin barrier and then you're touching your cat and you get that dander on your eyelid, it can penetrate deep enough to trigger redness and swelling. So sometimes type 1 allergies can actually play a role um, in eyelid dermatitis. And I see this in um, Austin is close to us. And in cedar season, a lot of patients will develop that swelling of the eyelids because cedar allergy is so common. So keep that in mind as well, that sometimes type 1 allergies can play a role. So why is it so hard for patients to sometimes figure out their own allergens? Well, that's because allergic contact dermatitis is T-cell mediated, and it takes 24 to 48 to 72 hours classically for those T-cells to get to the skin and elicit the reaction. But it can be as short as a few hours or it can be as long as a week. And so if you have your patient who colored her hair on Saturday and her rash on her eyelids doesn't show up till Thursday, she may not make that connection. That's why it can be so challenging for patients to figure this out on their own. And if you, if you tell them, you know, I don't want you to use that makeup, patients often <laughs> don't believe you. And there's a lot of myths about contact dermatitis you know, of course, the immediately after exposure. If you're allergic to your lotion, it's not that it's going to burn your skin. It's that it might trigger that rash two or three days later. And when most people hear allergy testing, they th think about pinprick testing. They don't think about contact dermatitis. And my favorite, of course, and I'm sure you're all's too, is that uh, all natural products cannot trigger allergic contact dermatitis. And I'm sure we're all seeing the essential oil reactions. Um, and I have a lot of patients who also will tell me, well, I only use expensive makeup. And it doesn't matter whether it's really expensive or whether it's a baby product, a lot of those have added fragrance. And fragrance is the number one thing that I see. So when I talk about less allergenic, there is no legal definition of hypoallergenic. And this leads to a lot of consumer confusion. So when you, oh, this one, uh, I just answered my own question. But in terms of hypoallergenic products, which one of these is true? Yep. So before I learned so much about labeling laws in the United States, and if you don't know a lot about labeling laws in the United States, there's a lot of terms that have no legal definition at all. And a lot of my patients buy hypoallergenic products because they believe that they have fewer of the allergens that trigger allergic reactions, and that's not true at all. Um, there's no legal definition, and in fact, Sometimes hypoallergenic products, as I'm going to show you, have more allergens. Now, what about fragrance-free products? Which of these is true? Products labeled fragrance-free cannot contain fragrance allergens, or they may legally contain fragrance allergens, or if you're allergic to fragrance, unscented products are acceptable, or if you're allergic to fragrance, natural fragrances are recommended. And 
The correct answer is that yes, even if you say fragrance-free, you may legally contain fragrance allergens. And that's a big issue because if you look at the top 15 allergens in North America, fragrances are at the top of the list. Um, nickel is number one on the list, but right after that are fragrances. And then other preservatives and cobalt, which is another metal. And then there are some other allergens that are in that list rounding up the top 15, including chemicals that are found in hair dye, in skincare products, and in rubber products. So um, if you look at the allergens that are both prevalent and significant, meaning they're causing problems, Number one is methyl isothiazolinone, which is a preservative that I see a lot of reactions to. Number two is fragrance. Um, and if you look at this list, everything that I have outlined in red, out of these top 12, the ones outlined in red are all found in skincare products. So the top 15, a lot of skincare products in there. And so if you look at labeling laws, you know, how would you tell a patient to avoid the top allergens that trigger contact dermatitis? Well, what your patients would think is that they can go all natural or that they can go hypoallergenic, and that doesn't work. This is a product that, it, I mean, it actually has a really nice label. It's hypoallergenic. It's our best body wash for sensitive skin. But if you look at the list, it's got DMDM hydantoin, which is formaldehyde, which is in the top 10. It's got fragrance, which is in the top 10. And it's got methyl isothiazolinone, which is number one. So it is not our best choice for sensitive skin. I'm sorry. Um, and the term fragrance-free and no synthetic fragrances are also frequently misunderstood. You can label a product as being fragrance-free as long as you are putting an ingredient in there that is not being used for the purposes of adding a fragrance. So if you're, if you've got a legal mind, you can see the loophole. In, you can see the loophole in there. You can add a fragrance as long as it's being used, let's say, as a moisturizing ingredient, like rose oil, or you're using it as a preservative, even though it's both a preservative and a fragrance, and you can then call it fragrance-free. That's why you have to be really cautious about the products that you recommend. So my system is to seek out products that contain few, if any, of the top 50 allergens as reported by the North American Contact Dermatitis Group. So when we talk about fragrance, there are hundreds of different fragrance additives. There's kind of the top 127, but there's several hundred more. And if you look at your shampoo bottle, you go home tonight, look at your shampoo bottle, pick up that label. It might have one word on the label that says fragrance. They've done studies where that one word has equaled 40 or more individual fragrance additives. And as I mentioned, the term fragrance-free is not going to be accurate in many cases. So my system is to avoid all fragrance additives, but I'm also going to avoid the other top ones, formaldehyde, methyl isothiazolinone, I'm also going to be really careful about a lot of the botanicals because I'm seeing a lot of reactions to tea tree oil, lavender oil, and some of the other natural botanicals. And then lanolin um, is not bad in and of itself, but I see a lot of allergic reactions to it, so I tend to try to stay away from it. And this is one of my patients who reacted to methyl isothiazolinone. Really impressive reaction. And I'm seeing, we did a study where we just looked at some of the children's products that were on the shelf. A lot of them used methyl isothiazolinone, not just baby wipes. It was found in a lot of the shampoos and lotions, um, products that are being marketed for children. So you got to be really careful about that. And there is an epidemic of allergy to MI, that preservative. So this was one of my patients who, when she came in, she was actually Cushingoid because she had gotten so many rounds of oral steroids. And she also looked aged because she had a lot of lichenification, redness, scaling. 
So in a patient like this with facial dermatitis, I'm pretty much going to stop everything in terms of skincare and makeup. I'm also going to talk to her about her sunscreen. It's so widespread, I'm going to talk to her about her hair care. Makeup remover wipes are still very popular, so I'm going to talk about that. And then we're going to think about what she might be transferring from her hands to her face. And these are some examples of gentle cleansers that have fewer allergens. So these fall into my less allergenic, um, into my less allergenic route. And if you're interested in my lists, I make those available on my website, and I update those once a year. And every product. Um, that I put on the list, I go through the ingredients one by one to make sure they don't contain any of these ingredients. And they're chosen, um, I tend to try to pick products that you can find at the drugstore. So something that's not too expensive that patients can find easily. But I do also have lists of specialty products that you might have to order online, but that patients sometimes prefer. And I have some of the more expensive product lines as well, because some patients tend to prefer that. So if you're interested at all in those updated lists, if they're updated once a year. They're all on my website, which is kattamd.com, K-A-T-T-A-M-D.com. And if you go to my handouts, you'll see um, I have a number of different before the patch test handouts, as well as my product list. But these are some examples of gentle cleansers that I've chosen. And for foaming cleansers, some people like hydrating cleansers that don't foam. Some people prefer foaming cleansers. So here are some examples of foaming cleansers that you can, that you can choose. And for bar soaps, one thing is Dove Unscented Bar Soap, for a while I thought must be the most popular bar soap in the country because it, it feels like everybody uses that one. But they've changed their ingredient list multiple times over the last 10 years. And sometimes they have fragrance and sometimes they don't. So I tend to go with a different kind of bar soap than, than Dove. I'm sorry. Um, and then I'll definitely have them stop using the Whole Foods botanical soaps. A lot of my patients really like those botanical products from Whole Foods. So you got to be really careful about those. So here are four different bar soaps that patients could use. I, um, I like, uh, you know, I like the Vanna Cream bar soap. It's one that you have to special order. And right now I'm liking the CeraVe Hydrating Cleanser bar soap too. So those are some options. And one of the things I tell my patients, um, especially since I might recommend products before I perform patch testing, one of the things I tell my patients is that every product has to have an allergen of some type. I mean, there have even been case reports of pure Vaseline petroleum jelly acting as an allergen. So it's really important to recognize that these are not non-allergenic. They're less allergenic. They make use of potential allergens or preservatives that can still cause allergic reactions in some individuals. So um, these are all sort of stopgap measures. If, and, and I have to say, a lot of patients do get better by following these recommendations. But there's certainly going to be people who require patch testing to really delve deep into all the allergens. But that's an important caveat that your patients need to recognize. I don't ever say that anything is non-allergenic. So in my patient, back to my patient with the facial dermatitis, you can see that she reacted to formaldehyde. She also reacted to imidazolidinylurea and diazolidinylurea, which are two formaldehyde-releasing preservatives. So that was her main allergen. So if she had followed, she was somebody I patch tested, so I didn't try these recommendations. But she's a good example of if she really followed all of those recommendations down to the last product, she probably would have gotten better. And this is what she really looks like. So she had looked a lot older. I didn't realize it until I saw her back. She actually came back and saw me six months later because she developed a hand dermatitis, probably because formaldehyde preservatives are used in a lot of liquid soaps. But her face looked great. 
Um, and so you might also see a man with a facial dermatitis. And in men, you might have to think about um, you might have to think about your aftershave, your shaving gel. And he was reacting to balsam of Peru and fragrance mix. And those are found in a lot of shaving gels and aftershaves. He also reacted to bacitracin. And a lot of patients, when they develop dermatitis, they're going to try antibiotic ointments anytime skin is cracked open especially, but even if it's not cracked open. And I took care of a lot of patients at the VA, and then I took care of a lot of patients in the private practice clinic. And so I can almost, um, I can almost make a little prediction of what over-the-counter products people are going to be trying. If it was the VA, some of my vets would be trying witch hazel or rubbing alcohol or apple cider vinegar. If it was some of my patients from um, a certain part of town, they might be trying the Whole Foods products, you know, another part of town, they might be trying Nivea. There's all these really interesting over-the-counter self-care measures. Um, but bacitracin and neomycin, so popular, and big allergens as well. So for my patient with the male patient with the facial dermatitis, I'm certainly going to be thinking about skincare products. I'm still going to be thinking about sunscreens, shaving gel, aftershave. I'm also going to be thinking about the wife's products, because I've seen that a number of times, where transfer contact dermatitis from your mom or for your wife might trigger your own contact dermatitis. Vanacream shave cream is one good option for a shaving cream, or sometimes I'll just have people buy free and clear shampoo and shave with that. And these are available. There's a company called Vanacream, and so they make a lot of different products that have no fragrance, formaldehyde, um, lanolin, or parabens. And so that's a nice option for a lot of patients. And I'm going to take a moment to talk about parabens. If you look at the top 50 allergens in North America, parabens are probably around number 47, 48. So they hardly ever trigger allergic reactions. Having said that, some of your patients are strongly anti-paraben because of what they've heard about the potential for endocrine disruption. So rather than get into that long, controversial subject with a patient, I might just choose to recommend a product that doesn't have it. So Vanacream is one option. There's certainly lots of product options out there, though. So this was a patient who came to me with a really severe hand dermatitis. And he had very deep fissures. You can imagine how painful this is. My patients always tell me this is like a thousand paper cuts. And I know what one paper cut feels like. So this is really hard to function. And he had been seen by three different dermatologists. And at each point in time, he was treated entirely appropriately. So he was told to stop working because he had a job changing tires. Then he was given a topical steroid. He was told to start using Cetaphil Gentle Skin cleanser. He was told to use steroids under occlusion and just kept getting worse at every point. So then when I patch tested him, well, let me talk about hand eczema just in general. One of the things, um, you know, I used to see a lot of, let's say, mechanics or machinists. One of the first things I would do for that group would be to stop using Gojo. So Gojo is a very popular industrial soap that must have a contract with a lot of manufacturers. But they have methyl isothiazolinone and they have a lot of fragrance additives. Citrus Gojo is very popular in some factories. So I would tell them right away, you know, let's change your cleanser. If it's, um, you know, one of my female patients, I will tell her, stop using Bath & Body Works. If it's made by Bath & Body Works, just stop all of it. Um, and then he had so many deep cuts. So I would tell them, stop using the antibiotic ointments. If you do have an infection, I'm going to recommend an oral antibiotic, or I'm going to recommend mupericin. 
I'm going to tell you to stop using any type of wipes. If you're a young dad changing diapers, I'm going to tell you to really do your best to not try to touch that diaper wipe with your hands because of the preservatives and the fragrances that are in there. And then I'm also going to tell you to stop using your leather and your rubber gloves because I see a lot of allergic reactions, especially to rubber gloves, but also to leather gloves. I like white cotton gloves. But in his case, you know, he's somebody that was using his steroids under occlusion, not with saran wrap, but with rubber gloves. And he did, in fact, react to carbamates. Now, carbamates are chemicals that are found in rubber. They're not latex. But anytime you make rubber, you have to add chemicals to that process to make your rubber come out. And so you can have carbamates in latex gloves. You can also have them in nitrile latex-free gloves. So if you're allergic to carbamates, okay, so right away he, was, um, he had stopped touching the tires, but he was still touching those rubber gloves. And he also reacted... Um, to a few other chemicals, including propylene glycol. Propylene glycol is a really interesting chemical because it's a really good moisturizer, and it helps medications penetrate deeper into the skin. And so because of that, it's used in over 50% of the generic topical steroids in North America. And so his topical steroids had chemicals to which he was reacting. So this is what he looked like six months later. So I really thought we would have to get him on light therapy or acetretin or methotrexate, but he was able to follow all the recommendations, and he healed with topical steroids alone, along with changing the gloves and the measures. And I'm going to run over some options for topical steroids as well. This is one of my patients who was a nurse, and one of the things I want you to notice about her hand dermatitis, it's very different than the other patient. So instead of having involvement on the palms, she has involvement on the dorsum of the hands, and it is worse at areas overlying the joints. So if you think about that, she's a nurse, she's reacting to her gloves. And it's not as bad on the palms, but the skin on the dorsum is thinner, and there's also a lot more friction on that area and a lot um, over the joints as well. And so one of the things, I've treated a number of surgeons, I've seen a number of cardiothoracic surgeons. And my theory is that they are wearing these gloves for 10 hours at a stretch, and they're sweating a lot, and there's a lot of friction. And so we know that those are conditions that set you up for allergic contact dermatitis. Because anytime you have an impairment of your skin barrier, and that might be from you rubbing, rubbing alcohol all over your legs, or it might be from having a wet, humid, sweaty environment under your gloves. That's a setup for an impairment of your skin barrier. When your skin barrier doesn't work well, it's easier to develop an allergic contact dermatitis on top of that. And so for somebody like that, she was a nurse, but let's say she was um, a cashier. You can recommend vinyl gloves because they don't have any rubber chemicals. They're pretty much non-allergenic as long as they are non-medical, because vinyl gloves do not protect against HIV. Um, you can recommend white cotton liners, and in fact, I always recommend that patients double glove, because if you're sweating, that's gonna make things worse. Um, you can use heavy-duty cotton or canvas gardening gloves if you're changing tires, but for medical personnel, they all need patch testing. You need to know exactly what they're, what they're reacting to in order to recommend alternate. And I can tell you the surgeons I've treated have almost all gone to occupational medicine first and been given latex-free nitrile gloves 
but they still contained rubber. So those are patients that, I mean, that's a potentially career-ending injury. So that's really some place where you have to patch test early. Um, and latex and gloves can lead to a type 1 allergy, but it's never conclusively been shown to cause allergic contact dermatitis. And in fact, um, it's usually rubber accelerators. If you need a hand sanitizer, fragrance allergy is still the number one allergen in doctors and nurses, and part of it's because of all the soap and the hand sanitizer in the hospitals. This is one of the only fragrance-free ones I was able to find made by 3M Avagard. And let's say you have a patient with generalized dermatitis. So this patient came to me because it was really believed that he had parigonodularis. Um, but they wanted to, you know, before going heavy duty with his medications, they wanted to patch test just to make sure. And so this is generalized dermatitis. And you can see it, it is pretty generalized. So in a patient like this, I'm going to revamp the whole skincare product line. I'm also going to take away the topical antibiotics. And, you know, some of these patients are trying tea tree oil. That's very popular right now. Um, or over-the-counter Benadryl cream or witch hazel. Um, but I'm also going to say, you know, let's be careful about your hair dye. Let's be careful about your clothing as well, because that might also be an issue. So, less allergenic skin care and hair care. We're going to do the fragrance-free laundry detergent. Well, I have to say, most of my patients have already done that. And then we're going to talk about less allergenic topical steroids as well. So when we patch tested this patient, it wasn't parigonodularis, it was a formaldehyde allergy. And you can see that really strong reaction to formaldehyde. And formaldehyde is found in skincare, and it's also found in certain types of clothing. And you can also see he reacted to several different formaldehyde-releasing preservatives that are found in skincare products. And so if he had been able to change all of his skincare, he might have improved. The clothing is a harder one, though. And um, if you take a look at the topical steroids that are out there, you know, this is one of the generics for halobetasol cream. If you take a look at it, this steroid does have diazolidinylurea, which is a formaldehyde, and it also has methyl isothiazolinone. So even the topical steroid creams or ointments in some cases could be an issue. So in terms of allergens and topical steroids, I just mentioned two of the preservatives. Some of them have benzyl alcohol, which is a fragrance. And then, of course, the vehicle could have lanolin or propylene glycol, which also might be a trigger. Um, and I call this iatrogenic contact dermatitis. But in this patient, you can see she's reacting to bacitracin. That's your topical antibiotic. But she's also reacting to propylene glycol, found in a lot of topical steroids, including in hers. And she was even reacting to tixacortylpivolate, which is a marker of allergy to certain steroids, such as hydrocortisone. So she was making it worse. So some of these recalcitrant atopic dermatitis patients or some of the recalcitrant Recalcitrant eczema patients might actually be contact dermatitis patients. And I can't tell you how often I have seen patients where I really, and even with my extensive clinical experience evaluating these patients, where even I have not have not predicted it in advance. I really thought this was a patient that was going to need methotrexate or something systemic. And then we found something like this. So I really keep an open mind when it comes to patients who look like they need systemic therapies. Um, and another different, this was a child allergic to propylene glycol. So in terms of, this is not on my website, obviously, um, but 
Topical steroid ointments, the one I already mentioned is that cortisone 10. I also like tacrolimus ointment. The vehicle is pretty much just petrolatum. It's pretty much just active ingredient in petrolatum. Desinide ointment is okay as well. And I will actually write prescriptions like this. I will say, Triamcinolone 0.1% ointment, generic, okay, as long as it does not contain propylene glycol. And I have to tell you, probably my favorite topical steroid for a mid-potency is triamcinolone because there's about six different generics, but most of them just have the active ingredient triamcinolone in a base of propylene glycol. But I'll actually specify that on the prescription. And um, Perigo is one generic brand, and, it'll, and it works for 0.025%, point. 0.5% and 0.1%. So it gives you several options that are less expensive. The desinide ointment, unfortunately, the generic is still crazy expensive. Now, if I suspect that somebody, if I'm not sure, are they reacting to the active steroid or the ingredient in the vehicle? My go-to is desoxymetasone ointment. Um, either the low potency or the high potency. And I prefer the ointment over the cream because of fewer allergens. But the reason I like a class C topical steroid like desoxymetasone is because it has very, it's very rare to develop an allergy to class C steroids. Um, so if you're not sure and you think your patient might be allergic to a steroid, that's a good one to go for. And then if you need something that's a higher potency, I like Halog ointment. In terms of creams, these are two options. And I'm sorry, by the way, the reason I'm putting the brand name here and not the generic here is because the generic is not necessarily formulated the same way that the brand is. So, um, but if that's a concern, you know, that's why the triamcinolone, I actually went through and found generics that worked for my specifications. But these are two options for your topical steroid creams. Oh yeah, I wrote that down there. All bets are off with generics. Just keep that in mind. And so this is my patient. So for the last, um, for the last 10 minutes here, I'm just gonna go over a few of the common allergens that I see. So in this patient, I'm gonna suspect hair dye right off the bat. but you know, just to be careful, you are going to be careful about hair care products. I see so many reactions to fragrance additives in shampoos and leave-in hair care products. So you got to be careful about those fragrances and those botanical extracts, but also be careful about the usual preservatives. And then cocamidopropyl betaine, which is found in a lot of hair care. And a lot of my patients, when they suspect allergy, are going to baby products. And remember, there's no regulations. Anybody can say that they're a baby product. There's no regulations at all. In fact, sometimes baby products are worse because people want their babies to smell like babies. So they have a lot of added fragrance. So I will rarely actually recommend a baby product. I do have a few that I recommend, but rarely. And here's an example of Johnson's Baby Shampoo, which is so popular for patients. But it's got the fragrance, the formaldehyde, and the cocamidopropyl betaine. So this is not my go-to shampoo. These are some of my go-to shampoos. Um, and it's really actually very hard to find a fragrance-free shampoo. And my patients aren't crazy about the free and clear necessarily. Um, there's one, the last one on this list is one that um, I, I've been trying out earlier this year and more patients are liking it. It's called VMV Hypoallergenics. It's a specialty company and you have to order them online, but it's a nice shampoo and it is fragrance-free. So that's some options. And then another one that I'm seeing a lot of reactions to right now is natural deodorants. If you go to Whole Foods, 
they have amazing scents in their deodorants. They've got like, um, you know, any essential oil you can think of. There's an entire line of natural deodorants that contain those. But I'm seeing a lot of reactions to those. And especially in women, especially in some of my teenagers, and probably because they're shaving their underarms and they're putting deodorant on right afterwards. Remember, if you're shaving your underarms, you might have an impairment in the skin barrier. So that might be a setup for you. So here's just a lavender and sage one. Um, and so, if I'm um, suspecting this, I'm going to recommend some alternatives, and I'm going to stop fragrance, and I'm also going to stop the propylene glycol, because that's another common trigger in the deodorants. And so here are some options for patients. I think one that's really easy to find is Almay roll-on deodorant. The crystal body deodorant stick is one that you can buy online, and then Vanacream makes several. Um, certain dry is another option, although it can be irritating, so just be aware of that. And if you have a patient who's really anti-aluminum, there is a Vanacream one that is aluminum-free. So chelitis is another thing I'm seeing a lot of with those chapped lips that never get better. Um, you know, patients don't necessarily tell me that they're red and inflamed. They'll often say it's chapped lips that just never get better no matter how much lip balm I put on. And in this patient, she was reacting to balsam of Peru and lanolin. And if I was going to say the top 10 allergens for chelitis, allergic contact chelitis, Number one, two, three, four, five, it's going to be Balsam of Peru. And Balsam of Peru is a fragrance additive, and it's also a flavoring. And it's also found naturally in certain foods. And so uh, the one thing I would recommend for somebody with chelitis, and I have a handout on allergic contact chelitis on my website, the one thing I recommend is that you change your, um, you really be careful with flavoring. And so this is an example of a cinnamon mint toothpaste. And um, you can see the fragrance additives and the cinnamon. And cinnamon is related to balsam of Peru. But it's more than that. You know, I would say stop the lip balms. And EOS is a brand that's very popular right now. So I just tell them stop all of it. I even tell them to stop the aquaphor because I do see a lot of lanolin reactions on the lips. Um, you also have to be careful with chewing gum, mints, and mouthwash because of the flavorings. And one other point, I will ask about recent crowns, bridges, and fillings because those have acrylates. And if you're somebody who's sensitized yourself to acrylic nails, those same chemicals are used in crowns, bridges, and fillings. So I've seen a few of those show up on the face as well. Another point to ask about. So here are some options for what you can use. Pepsodent is kind of an old-fashioned toothpaste. You know, patients aren't crazy about it, but it's a good option. Um, Tom's of Maine, I actually see a lot of reactions to their toothpaste, but there's one flavor that has a different kind of flavor, and it's Silly Strawberry. I'm very specific, this flavor only. So the Tom's of Maine Silly Strawberry is one option. For um, lip balm, I just like pure Vaseline petroleum jelly. Don't buy it in the baby aisle because it has added lavender. Don't buy it at the checkout aisle because it has added flavoring. But pure 100% Vaseline is one option. And then I'll recommend a less allergenic lipstick and a less allergenic lip sunscreen. And I have some makeup lists on my website as well that have some options for less allergenic lipsticks. And so this patient, back to my patient, she was reacting to hair dye. So diamine found in almost every permanent, semi-permanent, and demi-permanent hair dye in America. I'm seeing a lot of reactions to hair dyes. And so, which is true? Are henna hair dyes a safe alternative? If it contains toluene, diamine, sulfate, 
Is that an option or can it cross-react with PPD? If it says PPD-free, is it always a safe alternative? And are products applied in a salon always a safe alternative? Oh, good job, yes. So, in a patient like that, you know, where I'm suspecting it might be hair dye, gonna stop the paraphenylenediamine. But if you've ever looked at a hair dye label, it's really hard to find it. So this looks like a great hair dye. Natural instincts and it's ammonia free. But there's the paraphenylenediamine. It's hiding in the middle of this long list of ingredients. So it's one to be really aware of um, that can be hard for patients to find. So you can use pure henna, and there's also a natural ingredient called indigo that can give you a black tint to your hair. I've tried this myself, I wanted to experiment. It's really hard to put on and it doesn't last very long, so it's not ideal, but if you're allergic, it's a good option. Remember that highlights use a different kind of chemical, so that's okay, but low lights typically use the hair dye. And for salon dyes, there's one option that you can use. If you're going to a hair salon, they can order something called Illumin made by Goldwell. So that's one option for your patients. This is um, a product where we had told a patient, you know, go get henna hair dye. And he went to a Middle Eastern grocery store and look at his henna hair dye contained PPDA. So that was a surprise to us, but apparently that happens. And then here's a product at Sally Beauty Supply, and it is PPD free. And it does rather contain toluene diamine sulfate. And so toluene diamine sulfate can cross-react with PPD. We have very little data, but one study indicated that it cross-reacts at rates of about 50%. And so I do not recommend this until I have patch tested the patient to TDS and I know that they're okay with it. So it might be an option, but patch test first. And then nickel, the number one allergen in patients undergoing patch testing. And that might be from buttons and snaps, or it might be from necklaces. So which is true about nickel? Expensive jewelry is not likely to contain it. The nickel test kit contains dimethylglyoxime, but that may harm the object being tested, so be careful. White gold is a safe alternative, or nickel is leached out by sweat. Which of these is true? You can't stay here. All right, good job. So nickel is leached out by sweat. Um, and that's one of the reasons where you might, you know, I had a patient who had a particular necklace and she started working out more and then she started reacting to that necklace. And it was probably the sweat leaching out the nickel. And if you've got eyelid dermatitis, you have to be aware of that. I've had patients who work out in the gym with metal weights and they're sweating and then they're wiping the sweat off of their eyes. And in the process, they're transferring tiny particles of nickel. So you've got to be aware that nickel is leached out by sweat. So if you're thinking about nickel allergy, simple avoidance measures, just be careful. If it's in tight contact with your skin, it's more of an issue. That's why we see a lot of reactions to earrings, but not as many to bracelets. And we already talked about the sweat. So some common sense measures, you can tuck in your shirts, you can iron on patches. If it's keys, you can use plastic guards. I actually have a handout on jewelry for nickel because I just see so many patients allergic to nickel. This is one company called Simply Whispers that makes less expensive costume jewelry that is confirmed to be nickel free. James Avery has said that their sterling silver is nickel free as well. 
But be careful with most costume jewelry and be careful with most plated jewelry because that plating wears off and can expose the nickel underneath. Also, be careful with white gold because in order to make it white, you can add either nickel or palladium. And you don't know by looking at it which they have added. And then things like German silver or nickel silver or nickel bronze, um, well, some of those are obviously going to contain nickel, but German silver is contains nickel. So you got to be careful about that. And the nice thing about dimethylglyoxime test kits is that they do not harm the object being tested. So you can use them on your jewelry. And it'll, it's pretty sensitive. It's not 100% sensitive, but it's a pretty good one. And I like to order from nickelsolution.com because it comes with a barrier, almost like a nail polish lacquer that doesn't have any allergens. So you can, you know, if you have a wedding ring, you can paint this barrier lacquer on the inside of the wedding ring, and then you can still wear it. So that's nickelsolution.com. And that's what the dimethylglyoxime test looks like. It turns pink in the presence of nickel. And I'm just going to point out workout clothing as one. I'm seeing that as an ongoing trend right now. So if you have somebody with a generalized dermatitis, but they're sparing in the axillary vault, this is one that makes me think about clothing dermatitis. This was a patient who had really not too much dermatitis elsewhere, but really severe dermatitis on the posterior thighs. And his job was that of a security guard, and he had black uniform pants. And his job consisted of sitting for 12 hours every night. And so he didn't have much elsewhere, but he really had a lot on the back of his thighs. And this was an allergy to a blue clothing dye. And I'm seeing a lot of reactions to clothing dyes right now. You can have a reaction to formaldehyde resin, and that tends to be a chronic dermatitis, slower onset. The reactions to clothing dyes tend to be far more abrupt and maybe more severe. And it's usually from blue-black clothing, especially synthetic materials. And it's more likely in the setting of sweating and friction. So when you hear that, what are you thinking about? Think about workout clothing and these tight leggings, the sports bras. I've seen several to bathing suits and swim shirts, sports uniforms and children. You know, anytime you've got those synthetic materials that are darkly colored and you're sweating a lot and they're tight against the skin, consider textile dermatitis. Um, if you're looking, remember 100% cotton, in order to make it not wrinkle so much, you have to add chemicals to it in general. So um, if you have a 100% cotton that wrinkles really easily, it's probably okay, but otherwise it might have added chemicals. And cotton polyester tends to have added formaldehyde. If you're looking for cotton that has no added chemicals, I like cottonique.com, that's one company. Or you can go with 100% silk, 100% denim. Surprisingly, 100% polyester does not have formaldehyde. And if you're thinking about dye allergy, you can just go with lighter colors. That tends to be the easiest solution. So hypoallergenic products, which is true. <laughs> yeah, we went over this. No legal definition of this term. Fragrance-free products, which is true. Everybody's Yep, that's correct. They can legally contain fragrance allergens. Allergy to hair dye, which one of these is true?
Yep. And if you have toluene diamine sulfate, we suspect that there's probably about a 50% cross-reactivity rate with PPDA. And then for nickel, I know we already answered this one, but... You're unbelievable. Yep, nickel is leached out by sweat. And so... Um, I just wanted to point you to a few additional resources. If you are performing any kind of patch testing, I really recommend that you um, check out the resources of the American Contact Dermatitis Society. And the website is contactderm.org. If you are a member of the society, you get access to the Contact Allergen Management Program. And that's a database that has over 5,000 skincare products. And you can punch in what allergens the patient is allergic to and then it'll give you a list of products that the patient can use. So often I'll get an 80-page PDF document of a long list of makeup products and skincare products. So that's a great resource. And then the, um, the encyclopedia is by Fowler, Dr. Fowler and Dr. Zeros. It's Fisher's Contact Dermatitis. So that's the encyclopedia if you're performing patch testing. And then if you want any of my handouts, they're all on my website. As I mentioned, um, they're under handouts and I have these regional ones for what I would recommend for eyelid dermatitis, genital dermatitis, underarm dermatitis, generalized dermatitis, lip problems. I've kind of thought about a lot of these over the years. Um, and that's all on my website, katamd.com. And then finally, if you have a really tough case, this is an article we wrote earlier this year where we really delved into the world of products. Um, if you're allergic to acrylates and you need to get a filling, what can you use? This article is kind of an encyclopedic option of different alternatives for patients who have allergic contact dermatitis and who need solutions. So I'm going to thank you very much for your attention and thank you for having me. The overall performance of the speaker. I feel like I should say something right now, but I'm not sure what. <laughs> How useful will this session be in your practice? <laughs> As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? And if anybody has any questions, I'll be here. Oh, oh sorry, there are questions. Uh-oh. Have I seen dermatitis from contact lens solutions? I have seen um, that that is less common nowadays. So they used to have um, they used to have thimerosal in them. Nowadays, they might have a preservative called benzylconium chloride, but that is not a common. It is a possible trigger, but not a common trigger. And does the concentration of neomycin in patch testing lead to a higher incidence of allergic reaction as opposed to the concentration used in clinical applications? You know, that's a good question, but I have to say that the concentrations that we used for patch testing are pretty much optimized. They're, they're tested in large numbers of patients to try to find that optimal where we'll pick it up, but we won't sensitize them. So even though you might have a lesser concentration in real life, it still picks up that propensity to develop those reactions. So I believe that the answer to that is no. I think if I have somebody who is a positive to neomycin, I still recommend avoidance. 
And is the true test the only test you perform or recommend? So I didn't discuss the true test. I perform what's known as extended customized patch testing. And that means that I have a large library of allergens and every patient gets a customized series of allergens. If you are patch testing, in general, the true test will pick up. The general statistics are that you'll get 25% of patients who are tested pretty well. You'll get an additional 50% where you're going to miss allergens. You're only testing them partially. And then you'll get an additional 25% of patients where you're just going to miss it completely. So I, I actually never use the true test. If you are going to use the true test, I think the way to think about it is perhaps a screening tool where if you get negative reactions on the true test, it really doesn't um, it really doesn't give you as much information as you think it does. Now, if you get a positive to potassium dichromate, which is in leather, like that's a good place to start. Uh, but the other thing about true test that I would caution you about is it's known to have a higher rate of false negative reactions to fragrance additives and to rubber allergens. So if you're suspecting a fragrance allergy and you get a negative on true test, I don't think it means anything. And in fact, when I test for fragrance allergens, I test for multiple fragrance allergens because there's not really, you can, you can test for a few different screening allergens, but there's hundreds of fragrance additives. So you have to, you have to really keep Keep that in mind. Pretty much all of my patients with atopic dermatitis get a list of products that have no fragrance, methyl isothiazolinone, or formaldehyde. That's kind of every patient gets products that don't have any of those allergens. So back to the true test question though, definite false negatives to fragrance testing. All right, thank you. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.